Section 41 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 6. Waterloo. Part 1. In order to understand the fight at Waterloo, it is better, I think, not to have visited the field of battle, which I remember forty years ago as a pleasant rolling plain. Landscapes change, and here the cannon, the woodsman's axe, the plough have been at work. In 1815, all the country round Saint-Amont was so thick with trees that it appeared a forest when looked at from a distance, a land of bosky fields, deep lanes, and hidden villages, admirable as a cover for troops. These wide wavy valleys, which follow each other like billows and rise to the forest of Soigne, appeared deeper far when their ridges were fringed with trees. It was through a wooded country that Napoleon crept invisible till on the 16th of June he fell on the Prussians just beyond Fleurus, as the panther springs on his prey. His plan, as we know, was to attack the Allies at the point where their forces joined, to cut them in two as one cuts through the waist of a hornet, to fling the British on Al and the Prussians on Tongres, and then, rushing on Brussels before they had recovered that first stunning blow, to throw the Germans beyond the Rhine and the English into the sea. After that the Emperor could reflect and determine what to do next. Ligny is the first act of Waterloo. Early in the morning on that 16th of June the cannon boomed three times in the direction of Fleurus. That deep salutation was succeeded by the strains of fife and drum, a great noise of singing, an endless acclamation, a prolonged roar which, as it approached Saint-Amand, resolved itself into the words, Vivre l'Empereur! The Prussians, hidden in the bosky hedges and orchards of the village, remained motionless, silent, until the first line of the French was seen nearing the church and the graveyard. Then the invisible Germans let loose, as with one rifle, a rolling fire of musketry. The French dashed on in a superb bound forward, and soon every barn, garden, outhouse was a scene of carnage, and men were knifing each other's ribs with unfixed bayonets in a struggle too close for rifle fire, from the eaves to the cellars of every cottage in Saint-Amand. This first day's fight could only be what it was, a thundering onset, a crashing attack, a position carried by decision and surprise. Blücher and his eighty thousand men were thrown back from Saint-Amand and Ligny, having suffered terrible losses. Their retreat left the English flank uncovered, and Wellington was forced to withdraw in good order on Waterloo. The furious cannonade of Ligny had surprised the English. Wellington was not quick or ready. The Battle of Waterloo is the Battle of the Hare and the Tortoise. On the very day when Napoleon entered Belgium, Wellington was writing a long dispatch to the Emperor Alexander, proposing a new plan of campaign for the invasion of France. Little did he dream that his enemy was already in the gate. On the eve of Ligny, he still suspected nothing, and it was at the Duchess of Richmond's ball in Brussels that the English commander-in-chief and his staff 
learned the news of napoleon's presence between charleroi and ligny but which of us does not remember the scene in vanity fair and in the dynasts ligny one of the most terrible battles of the century was a victory for the french and might have been a decisive victory but for a lack of energy and coherence in the carrying out of napoleon's command which was to have a sequel infinitely more important on the morrow the french army though it contained a great proportion of conscripts had never been more ardent braver and ney grouchy soult derlon gerard had fought victoriously on many a field beside their emperor what had robbed them now of their speed their decision their self-assurance their certitude of victory was it the defeat and capitulation of eighteen fourteen was it that they had if not betrayed at least abandoned a year ago their emperor their general of to-day or was it the absence of berthier prince of wagram berthier was no thunderbolt of war no genius he was the administrator of the battlefield he saw that the orders were clear that they were duly carried insufficient doubles that one officer or more shot down by the way did not stop communications between the centre and the wings he was an admirable major-general waterloo was perhaps lost by napoleon for lack of the inconspicuous berthier on a souvent besoin d'un plus petit que soi but berthier like the other marshals had capitulated to the bourbons and on his master's sudden return would not like soult and ney forsake the king for the emperor nor like marmont and macdonald immolate napoleon to the bourbon king inextricably torn between his honour and his conscience berthier had refused to take either part and had retired to bamberg where on the first of june just one fortnight before waterloo he had been mysteriously murdered by masked assassins on which side did his ghost call down vengeance soult who assumed berthier's customary charge at ligny and waterloo was a general of rare military talent and a wise administrator but one of those maundering pedantic talkers who think any sharp precise contour in speech incompatible with dignity instead of saying send erlon here bid ney go there he indulged in generalities confusion was the result general derlon was sent from pillar to post and during the whole arduous day at ligny wandered up and down the battlefield bringing his men to and fro back and forth between napoleon and ney without placing them at the disposal of either worse still acting on his own discretion in disobedience to orders put off the attack on quatre bras where the prince of orange and wellington were blocked with scarce eight thousand soldiers until the anglo-belgians had time to bring up fifty thousand more worst of all was the inexplicable inaction of grouchy who after prodigies of valour at ligny remained as it were stunned and passive during the two succeeding days it was to this extraordinary attack of military paralysis that napoleon himself attributed his defeat at waterloo thus it happened that owing to inefficient staff work napoleon had been obliged to fight at ligny without erlon's force 
indeed without a single man from Ney's command. The Prussians had been forced to retreat, but they were not annihilated as they should have been. Indeed, they were not as damnably mauled as Wellington said and Napoleon supposed. On the morning after Ligny, the rain fell in torrents. Perhaps some day our physicists will tell us why it always rains after a great artillery attack. So far they have either denied the circumstance or murmured something vague concerning the ionization of the clouds. Waterloo, at all events, was no exception to the rule. The roads were so deep in mire that it was impossible to move the artillery much before noon. Yet the whole problem for Napoleon was a question of time. Could he get at the English before the remains of the Prussian forces had time to recover and come to their assistance? The great thing was to learn which road had been followed by the German general in that retreat, which was not, as Napoleon still hoped and supposed, a rout. Grouchy, with 36,000 men, was told off to pursue the enemy, and at all hazards to prevent his junction with the British. But Grouchy, after a march of five miles or so, stopped still, wasted all this day of the 17th. It is true the weather was so appalling that the troops in their rain-soaked clothes could barely move through the mud, and even when they moved, could barely see. Napoleon's chief fear was that the English would escape behind the forest of Soigny or Soigne. But the English had no thought of escaping. Wellington massed his men solidly and squarely in front of the forest on the strong position of the Mont-Saint-Jean, a low eminence eleven miles south of Brussels, and there he waited. Late on the evening of that wasted day, the 17th, Napoleon paced his camp with the faithful Bertrand, turning in his mind many sombre thoughts and fears of a possible aggression of the Austrians from beyond the Rhine. When he saw, as he thought, a forest fire in the direction of Soigny, it was the bivouac of the British soldiers, who under the pouring rain were trying to dry their coats before their smoky fires of green wood hacked from the trees. At five in the morning on the 18th of June, a pale ray of sun lit up the sky, and the emperor knew a gleam of joy. We have eighty chances out of a hundred, he exclaimed. But the roads were still too wet for the guns. The battle had to be put off until almost noon. Napoleon's plan was to throw himself with the full force of his right on the English left, hammer at them and throw them off the Brussels road, while at the same time shutting off the chance of retreat through the forest of Soigny. On his extreme right, Grouchy, with his 36,000 men, was to keep off the Prussians and bring up a reserve if wanted. On the left, Ray was to attempt a diversion on the farm of Hougoumont, a little in advance of the British right. Meanwhile, Wellington awaited his attack. The decision to defend the Mont-Saint-Jean was taken upon the assurance of Prussian help. The British commander had learned that Blücher's army was concentrated at Wavre, a large village which lies some thirteen miles north of the field of Waterloo, and that he might count on them to open on the French right somewhere about noon on the 18th. Napoleon supposed the Prussians in full retreat to the east, harried in their rear by Grouchy's division. Had he suspected that 90,000 Prussians were within four hours' march, 
and proposed relieving wellington in the course of the day he would never have waited until thirty-five minutes past eleven in the morning before launching his attack on the duke End of section forty one